I really appreciate the uh, attention that uh, Ritlon is, is putting on national security. I'll get back to that in, in, in a second. Uh, but I think we, and I mean all of us, have undervalued the role that uh, American national defense plays in undergirding our whole quality of life, our economy, and everything about it. Um, but uh, the other, well, I'll talk just a second about the substance of what we're trying to do. But first, let me just brag a little bit about process. Bob mentioned, or, or, or Dave, I mean, uh, uh, Consulman mentioned, we're going to vote tomorrow on our conference report as the last thing the House does before we go out of session. If it's passed and if it's signed into law, it will be the 58th consecutive year that under presidents of both parties, congresses of both parties, that we have signed into law a defense authorization bill. It's the only area left where we still do an authorization and, and uh, an appropriation bill. Uh, I think uh, that it will get a wide bipartisan vote. Uh, most all of the Democrats have uh, signed the conference report uh, it has the support of, of the key leaders, uh, and, and I, I think it's really important that we try to maintain as much as we can a bipartisan support for the men and women who are out there risking their neck for us. Uh, there have been, over this process in this year's bill, 1,005 amendments that have been proposed either at the subcommittee, full committee, or floor level, and I'm not counting the Senate. Uh, about half of them, 500-something, have been adopted in some form or another. So it's also one of the last vestiges where all sorts of members can make a contribution to the process. Uh, and, and then we actually had a conference with the Senate and sat down and worked through differences. Again, not something that these guys these, uh, are, are used to, to seeing much these days. Last point on process, uh, if it's passed and signed into law, this will be the first time we've had a defense authorization bill signed into law before the end of the fiscal year since 1996, the FY97 bill. But if it, if it happens, uh, it will be the earliest it's been done since 1977, uh, in other words, 41 years. And the reason that's, that's possible is because there was a two-year budget deal last year. So we know the number. It was just a question of what we're going to buy with, 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 with the number. Um, we, we really try to focus on two issues, and, and Consman was kind of talking about one of them. One is to rebuild the military, and the other is to reform the Pentagon. Um, I'll give you one other statistic. Military Times did a study and found uh, a 40% increase in aircraft accidents since 2011, a 40% increase because the Department of Defense budget was cut by more than 20% and the world did not get 20% safer. So we still had these high demands. You still got to be off the coast of North Korea. You don't have time to get training. So you have destroyers running into things. Uh, you still got to fly those missions over Iraq and Syria. Uh, so we'll have to cannibalize some uh, units in order to keep those flying. That's the sort of thing that's happened. Take people out of Army units so you can make other Army units whole. Uh, that's what we've been doing, and that's why rebuilding the military, not just to what it was, but focused on hypersonics 
robotics, artificial intelligence, the things the Russians and the Chinese are focused on. That's part of our rebuilding. Also, we're, we're trying to reform the Pentagon, and that is get more value for the taxpayer dollars on what we buy, but also make decisions faster. It used to be that the government labs could invent a bunch of stuff. Uh, now, much of the innovation occurs in the private sector, but the uh, 1950s bureaucracy cannot keep up with the way, say, the high-tech community is innovating. So DOD's got to be more friendly. They've got to make decisions faster. A lot of that is organizational and, and, and process reforms that, that we've been, we have been working on. Both of those causes, I think, are advanced in, in this bill. Um, I, 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 just, just to repeat myself for just a second, I do think, and I, I fought myself for this as well, we have not done as well as we should. Uh, and I mean, we, all the people who have benefited from the American way of life since the end of World War II, we have not done as well as we should to remind each other, to educate about what we have accomplished, largely with the blood and sacrifice of the men and women in the military, the world order we've created, how we Americans have benefited more than anybody else. Whether you want to look at life expectancy, quality of life, freedom, not being attacked, you know, other than 9-11. All of these measures, we have benefited more than anybody else. Keeping sea lanes open so that we could uh, trade freely. You just think about these things. It's been because of men and women in the military. Uh, and if, if we neglect that, our children and grandchildren will not have the quality of life that, that, that we have had. As, as Jim mentioned, I am incredibly uh, grateful to have the benefit of some outstanding members, but I'll, I'll say especially the, the, the newer members of the committee. Uh, and, and I'll add, we've got a lot of good Democrats who have been added to the committee in recent years too, but, but the, the, the two folks with me today are, are some of our best, and I want to turn it over to them. Uh, Bob has already done really introduction. Steve Knight uh, really grew up around Edwards Air Force Base. He served in the Army, longtime police officer, really an expert in aerospace, uh, partly because of his background, partly because of his district. Uh, let me turn it over to Steve for his insights about what he's experienced after nearly four years on the committee. Well, thank you. Thank you to the Reform Society. Thank you, uh, Chairman. He almost said the young members. Uh, <laughs> he would have. <laughs> but um, I, I appreciate the Chairman. I, I can tell you, when I came into Congress, my absolute number one goal was to be on Armed Services. Uh, and, uh, and meeting Chairman Thornberry, it made it uh, even more impressive to me. Uh, he has been exceptional in making sure that we're looking out for the men and women, uh, making sure they're getting the right training, making sure they're getting the right equipment. And that, uh, that falls right in line with what I think. Uh, look, if a pilot's not in the cockpit, if a sailor's not sailing, and if our ground pounders aren't, uh, aren't pounding the ground, they're not learning and they're not keeping up those perishable skills that we need if we ever have to send them into battle. And the fact of the matter is, if our pilots are only flying 15 hours a month, and the Russian pilots are flying 30 hours a month. Uh, I know a lot of people don't like to hear this, but they'll probably be better. Uh, you need to be in the cockpit. That is the way it is. It's a perishable skill. Everything that you do in the military is. That's why when you go into the Army or the Marines and you have that, that 
first uh, impression of how they're teaching you, it's because they want you to learn and they want it to be imprinted in your brain. So every time you do it, you do it the exact same way. Uh, my mission, uh, and I think the chairman has kind of allowed me to, to run with this, is to uh, look at a lot of the, the new programs that we can have. Uh, hypersonics, he brought up hypersonics, and, and he's been a very big advocate for that. And we have too. Um, that is a game-changing event if a country uh, has a hypersonic weapon. Uh, just remember, if you can fire a bowling ball at 3,800 miles an hour and it has enough kinetic energy to do just about whatever you want it to do without exploding. So that is a game-changing event. It would be a changing event for our naval operations in the in South China Sea. It would be a, a game-changing event for everything if a, uh, a rogue state was able to acquire something like that. So. We have to be on the forefront of that. Uh, I think that uh, that allows me to kind of go out there and talk to the people that are doing this, talk to the companies and the, and the smaller companies that are doing innovative actions uh, that get us to those types of things. We're also looking at, um, to me, one of the biggest issues for a combatant commander is ISR. If you can't see what the enemy is doing, if you can't see the changes from day to day, then you are, in essence, flying blind, or you are moving your military a little, um, maybe cockeyed. So ISR is so important to us. That means our U-2s have to be uh, flying. That means that uh, our Global Hawks have to be in the air. That means those types of assets have to be ready and available for our commanders when they need them. And this NDAA takes care of an awful lot of that, and it moves us in a very positive direction where we have it maybe been going that positively over the last 15 years. And remember, we've been in combat for the last 17 years. When you use stuff, uh, the military breaks it. That's kind of part of our job, is to uh, go out and use stuff very hard and put it through the, uh, the rigors of combat, and things break. And so if we haven't had time to fix them, like the chairman said, then you get uh, airplanes that you have to find a part from another airplane. That means you took a part from that airplane, that airplane can't fly. Um, and so on and so forth. So I appreciate uh, the time to come in and talk. I appreciate this NDAA and, uh, and the NDAAs we've kind of been working on in the last four years, that at least I've been here, it has been a culmination of moving forward and getting into a, a much better position for our men and women that, uh, that serve and protect us. So with that, I will turn it back over to the chairman. Thank you, sir. I asked uh, Mike yesterday how he wanted me, what he wanted me to say about him. He said, say I'm the fastest man in Congress. <laughs> well, my point is, if you're just faster than old geezers like me, that's not saying that much. <laughs> so, uh, he's, he served as a Marine, uh, including deployments in Iraq. Uh, he's very loosely educated uh, with a uh, degree from Princeton, a master's, and a PhD from Georgetown. We could work with all that stuff, and you know, but the nearly impossible feature of his background is he's been a Senate staffer, and it is oh. impossible to get that out of him. We're doing our best. I got it. Good learning point out of it. Going forward, I don't know our conversations are, are not private. <laughs> Hey, don't tell Tom Cotton, because I've beaten him the last two years and he hates me. That's really cool. uh, 
But uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, not only for having me here today, but uh, being on the Armed Services Committee, I've only been here a year and a half, but it is uh, an absolute honor, and the Chairman has gone out of his way to um, give me many opportunities. The highlight of my first year in Congress was traveling to Asia uh, with a great group uh, under the Chairman's leadership, and that was a trip I will uh, never forget. I also admire the Chairman very much uh, because he married well outside his league, and uh, <laughs> Sally is a fantastic human being, and uh, so I want to thank you for your leadership. And I think what we're about to do this week is a remarkable achievement, and you don't see that um, in Congress enough. Um, and I was proud to play a small role in it. I actually think what's most interesting about the NDAA this year is that it nests quite well within uh, the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. The big conceptual move of which was to posit that great power competition, uh, long-term competition with China and Russia, is our foremost <coughs> challenge going forward. Uh, and that's actually a pretty big change, right? I mean, to explicitly state that it's actually not um, terrorism, not to say that we're going to ignore the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and that the threat from Salafi jihadism is going to suddenly disappear. But this is a this is a sea change, and it's not something that's going to happen overnight. I've sort of been struggling with why is it that it's so hard to make the case uh, for um, paying attention to the long-term threat posed by China, right? We've had certain things that I thought would have been Sputnik moments, uh, if you will, uh, particularly the OPM hack, um, where I think most of the people in this room probably worked with the government at some point and got a nice little letter from OPM saying, you know, thanks for your service, your records have been hacked. I thought that would have been a wake-up call. We've had a variety of wake-up calls with what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea. Um, certainly Russia has provided um, its fair share of wake-up calls, but it's very hard to make the case uh, in places like Green Bay, Wisconsin, quite frankly, that we have, this is a moment of profound urgency. And if we don't invest in our own defense right now, if we don't invest to maintain our relative dominance and our superiority, the world's going to look much different in 10 years, let alone 20 or 50 years. And I think the NDAA does that quite well, not just in terms of the overall dollars we're investing in defense, not just in terms of the number of ships that we're building. I spend most of my time focused on the future of the Navy and the Marine Corps and how do we get to three good patch of Navy, uh, not just in terms of the pay raise or the money we have to fix the readiness crisis, but I actually think in some ways the non-military, the non-sort of guns and bombs aspects of the NDAA may prove most important over the long term. Things like, for example, um, taking a harder look at what the Chinese are doing with their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, taking a look, comprehensively reforming the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States and our processes for reviewing how the Chinese and other countries are investing here in our own national security uh, innovation base. Um, taking a look at uh, foreign talent recruitment programs that have a bizarre and perhaps threatening relationship with some of our universities here and making sure that we uh, are not opening ourselves to be spied on uh, by the Chinese and some of our best intellectual assets are compromised. Um, and I also think, and I'm not just saying this because I had an amendment involved in this, but um, forcing the administration to certify whether the Russians are in compliance with the INF and forcing us to have a discussion about whether we should be bound by the INF, because if you actually look at the Pacific, we can build all the ships in the world. Um, but if the Chinese are able to hold our exquisite ships at risk quite cheaply with intermediate range missiles that we are not allowed to deploy, well, we're acting in an strategic manner, and it doesn't matter how many ships we build, we're not going to be able to express our power in the Pacific. So that's a long way of me saying I, I think the chairman um, and uh, members on the left and the right have produced a very 
comprehensive uh, document that I think will stand the test of time. That being said, I think we're at risk of one thing, uh, which is to declare mission accomplished, right? I mean, $770 billion is a lot of money, right? It would be easy just to say, hey, we did it, mission accomplished, we did the military rebuild. But as everyone knows, as the chairman has been the most eloquent spokesman <coughs> for the fact that you know, it took us a while to get into this hole, into this mess, and it's going to take us as long, if not longer, to get out of it. And we're going to have to keep making the case for that. And the final thing I'd say, and I'm sorry to go on, um, uh, there was a, a few provisions that I, I think the administration had problems with, most notably uh, on the ZTE provisions, and I think we landed in a great place. But I just bring that up to say, that's how the system's supposed to work, right? I know we view everything through the prism of the presidency these days, but it's okay if Congress, even if it's members of the same party, the president, have a different opinion about things, and it's good to have that back and forth. And in that productive debate, we arrived at a good place, and we don't have the system working that way enough, and we need to be in the business of flexing those Article One muscles as much as humanly possible. So. With that, I'll get off my soapbox and thank you to the chairman for thoroughly embarrassing me. Well, I could do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jim, I want, I want to say one other thing. Uh, as y'all could just tell, uh, one of the things that I appreciate most about these members and, 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 and several of our new members is they are really focused on what's good for the country. Uh, <clears throat> A somewhat unfair rap on the Armed Services Committee in the past is, oh, they're just looking to protect their district, their base, their jobs, that's all they care about. That, that, ain't, that is not so. I really appreciate, uh, and one of the questions I ask somebody who wants to come on the committee is, okay, do you care about something more than just your backyard? Are you looking for the longer, bigger term for the country? These guys are, and I really think that has been uh, a key asset for us as we talk about these issues, that it's clear this is not just about jobs and bases, although we all have to represent our districts. This is about how do we protect our freedoms and, and our people uh, in the light of an unprecedented number of threats, especially going forward. So thanks for having us. Uh, I, I'm happy to do questions. Thank you.